This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? I sure am. Guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. And before we get into it with Jordan Lamote, he's back. Let's talk about a little bit of business, shall we? First things first, Broadbeck Ironworks. Broadbeck Ironworks are the makers of the 2x72 grinder. It's a grinder made from, by, knife makers for other knife makers and sculptors, woodworkers, metal workers, all of them. All of them. You don't have to be a knife maker to have a Broadbeck. Leia Arpot, she's making her sculpture with a Broadbeck. Keith, Keith Mitchell, he's making woodworking with the, with the Broadbeck. And knife makers like me, Mareko Mamasi, and a pile of other knife makers are using this Broadbeck Ironworks, and it's great. It's very user-friendly. Uh, horizontal, vertical, it's got awesome attachments, whatever you need. And if you go to BroadbeckIronworks.com, put in the promo code KNIFETALK200, you can get $200 off on their grinder packages. When you say, what's a grinder package? Well, they make lots of different attachments and contact wheels, and they have integral attachments and all sorts of stuff that's really helpful to you that's going to make whatever you need to make better. And, you know, you definitely get that $200 off if you want to get one of the packages. But if you're looking at, they also sell a sharpening system, and they have an awesome surface grinder that attaches to the Broadbeck and a leather sewing machine. You put in a Knife Talk 100, you're going to get $100 off of that. And it's worth it. It's definitely worth it. And those guys are great guys. Uh, I really love my Broadbecks. Broadbecks. Um, that's a humble, humble brag right there. And um, I love them. And it's definitely worth it. You should definitely check them out. Check them out on Instagram, see what they're doing. Next is Even Heat. I've known Even Heat for a long time. Even Heat's the manufacturer of the finest heat treat ovens available. Finest. And not to mention, I'm going to tell you how great their customer service is. What's a heat treating oven? Well, if you're making knives, you're making tools, you're making something that needs to be hardened. Or you're making pottery. You need, a, you need to get a kiln. Even Heat makes the best kilns around. And not to mention, not only are they great with the solid state uh, but the solid, solid state readouts and their tap control, how easy it is to use and program. But their customer service is the best. I had anytime I have a problem or not even a problem, but question, I call them up at Even Heat and they are answering the they're answering every question I got. They're the best. So if you go to evenheat-kiln.com, you can check out what they have. Definitely see what they what you can get. And if you go follow Knife Talk, they have a Knife, uh, my other podcast, Knife Talk, they'll have, um, they have dis a distributor that'll give you a discount off and free shipping in the United States. So get yourself some of that even heat and stop playing around. You know what I'm saying? Next is Axe Wax. Axe Wax is all natural food safe wax for your axe. If you go to axewax.us, put in the promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off all your all natural food safe Axe Wax. And if you don't believe me, it's all it's global. Axe Wax is global. You can go to the UK. UK Knife Supplies has it. They're taking Full Blast 10. Uh, in the EU, Keith Colby's taking it over at knifematerial.at. He's taking Full Blast 10. If you're in Australia, you can go to nordicedge.com.au. They're taking Full Blast 10, and Gamaco's taking Full Blast 10. It's great stuff. I use it all the time. I love it, and I know that other people use it for other things besides their handle scales or wood or leather or whatever you people put putting on their lips if you know if you're real honestly using a lip balm and stuff for the hair for their boots and stuff it's, it's awesome stuff so get yourself some of that axe wax stop playing you know what i'm saying all right i gotta stop saying i gotta stop saying stop playing 
Next is Maritime Knife Supply. MaritimeKnifeSupply.ca for all your knife-making needs. Belt, bra belts, braces, steels, kilns, forges, presses, heat treat ovens, anvils, and anything you need to get started or resupply on your road to being a knife maker. They even have axe wax. They have the TR Maker stuff. They have a pile of steel. Uh, Lawrence gets steel all the time, and he has on his abrasive belts, if you get a 10-pack of abrasive belts, you get 10% off. And if you're saying to me, well, I'm in Mississippi, what would I need to go get stuff from Canada? It's going to be just as fast, and the price is just as good. And he's a knife maker. He's very involved with the New England School of Metalwork, and he knows what you need. And if you say to yourself, I'm in Canada, and I can't get me one of something, 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 give Lawrence a call and say, hey, listen, it'd be great if you had this, and he'll get on it. So go get yourself some of that um, Maritime Knife Supply and get yourself the uh, Dr. Laren Thomas's must-have book, Knife Engineering. If you're not a, if you're a knife maker, you don't have it. I don't know what you, I don't know what you're, you're wasting. You're wasting time. Go get yourself that. Next is Trojan Horse Forge, makers of the THF Stable Rail Knife Finishing Vice. They're, their vices are made in the heart of Texas, and they're great. They're designed to take your handle finishing to an old new level. It's not just for handles. It's also for for your blades. If you're hand-sanding your blades, they have some plates to bolt on. They're very intuitive, and they're, they have, they're packed with leather and all sorts of stuff, and all you have to do is put them in, and you can hand-sand your knives, and then you can take the plates off or flip it around, and you can... Uh, Finish your handle Your handle once it's all done. It's great. And if you go to TrojanHorseForge.com, put in the promo code FULLBLAST, you're going to get free shipping in the United States. They have payment plans available, and they're very involved in the knife-making community. They just did a great, uh, uh, they just did a great um, project for Jason Knight, who's you know, trying to figure out everything after his fire. Been, they've been dynamite in the community. So the best of the best have the Trojan Horse Forge knife finishing vice, a stable rail knife finishing vice, and you should definitely check it out at TrojanHorseForge.com. Next is Total Boat, baby. Total Boat are the makers of adhesives, paints, primers, polishing compounds. Uh, for boaters and DIYers, they understand you, that you need your projects to go smoothly. That's why they're constantly finding ways to make their original products better and easier to use, more sustainable, less expensive. They tinker with the packaging from time to time to make it more user-friendly. Their real-world know-how is what separates them from giant chemical conglomerates and sets their stuff apart. I love this stuff. I actually just, I'm doing these uh, new Color Lab handles with pins and stuff like that, and I'm using their two-part epoxy to uh, put my, uh, my colorful pins in, and it's been really very easy to use, very user-friendly, uh, and I love it. And it, listen, if, it, if it's good enough for me, good enough for Jimmy DiResta, if it's good enough for Keith Decent, Derek from Malden, all these guys that are using their total boat, it's good enough for you. And I mean, it keeps a boat, if it's, if it's meant to keep boats afloat, what's the, I mean, what else do you need? I mean, it could keep you in the water. It's going to keep your projects running smooth. So go get yourself some of that uh, total boat. And I would say besides getting the two-part epoxy, definitely take a look at their UV Cure Clear Resin. It's really great stuff. And if you go to TotalBoat.com, put in the promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off your order. Okay? Total Boat, baby. And last but certainly not least, um, I want to thank my friends at NordicEdge.com.au. The Nordic Edge, that's Nordic Edge, Nordic underscore Edge on Instagram. They are uh, a company in Australia that makes pro tools that have make pro tools for knife makers. They have a, uh, they do this original file guide with screw on carbides that I've been using for the past two weeks and I love it. Uh, it's non magnetic stainless steel, won't rust, no steel dust will stick to it. 
giving the makers the edge since 2015. If you are in Australia and you're thinking to yourself, I'd love to get into knife making, but I don't know how to start. If you go to Nordic Edge, they also have they have kits, so you can you can put and put a knife together and see how you feel. Uh, they have all sorts of knife making supplies, abrasives, grinders, toolings, kits, handling materials, parts, hammers, and piles of other things to get you up and running. From seasoned vets to beginners who've never made a knife before, get a kit with a heat treated ground blade. Nordic Edge, uh, they actually ran a really great uh, maker give back campaign uh, for our friend Kev Slattery, who was needs to get multiple disc spine surgery and he was a guest on the podcast and he and uh they did him did him a solid so i want to thank 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 nordicedge.com uh and if you use full blast 10 to get some axe wax over there they're going to give you 10 percent off your order so nordicedge.com.au thank you so much for all your support jamie you're the man bjorn it's a pleasure doing business with you and everybody else all my sponsors thank you so much I have been waiting for, it must be like about a year and a half for the return of my next guest. Jordan Lamote was here right before Blade Show. He probably gave me one of the best interviews of all time because he surprised the audience. He surprised the audience. Jordan, do you remember what you did? Uh, let's see. That, so this was right before I was going to test for right. Master Smith. And if you didn't I tell anybody and you broke the news here. Yes. Oh, right. So I didn't tell anybody that I was going to India for That's a right. nine-month well, here, so here's, 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 here's the thing. I don't think we've spoken or, since the last time you were on. So you came on, I think it was on a Monday, just like today, and it was like the Monday before Blade Show. And you came on and you said, oh, by the way, I'm testing for Master Bladesmith. This And you told the whole story, and it was really exciting. Yes. I didn't expect it. Not anybody expected it. This podcast came out on Friday of Blade Show. People were listening, and the amount of messages I got saying, well, what happened? Well, what happened? Well, what happened? Was like everyone was <laughs> on their seat because it was instant news. Like as they were listening to this, they knew that you were testing for Master Bladesmith. How did that go? Yes, exactly. So Blade Show, let's see. I guess That's that was right. Blade Show 2021 was super successful for me. I went down and I earned my master smith stamp so i was successful in that regard and i also won the br hughes award which is one that they give to the best master smith knife submitted for testing that year so we got master smith and the br hughes award and then i also was fortunate enough to walk away with two blade show awards as well uh so that the same knife that won the br hughes award also won best Fixed blade and best in show. Unbelievable. I think I think your being so. on this show put a lot of pressure on other people testing to be on the show. Because I said, I think after you were on, I was so arrogant. I kept saying to people, I'm like, I said, Well now anyone who's testing and you come on the show, you gotta you, you now you're not doing it for you anymore. You're doing it for this show. You're doing it for the you're doing it for this. Because you <laughs> I was I think I might have even said a few times, you took the whole show apart. You took it all down, you took it everything with you. You came down there and took everything back. It was unbelievable. But the amount of people who reached out I who was were very so lucky. excited for you, it was really, really awesome. Really awesome. Oh well, that that makes oh, my dude, heart warm to hear everyone, that. I'm, people are texting people. I hate it when people text me out of the blue, and then they start texting. Well, what happened? Well, what happened? Like I don't know. Go follow him. I don't have. I'm not. A, I'm. It's not like I'm with him. <laughs> but it was awesome. And then the other part of the last episode you were talking about was you just won the Fulbright scholarship 
to travel to India and you were in a state of you didn't know it was going to happen because the Fulbright Scholarship is a very prestigious award that allows you to travel abroad, but it's a very specific amount of time. And I, when I, I think the last time you and I talked, you said that when they have it, if there's like some sort of delay based on the pandemic, you were kind of afraid that you'd get, you know, thrown out or, or just at least, I don't, well, right. tell me about that. I remember that. Oh, I, I actually, thank you for jogging my memory in that regard, because I had, I had forgotten just how much of an ordeal it was. Because of the pandemic, I was initially supposed to go to India in right. September, and that date got moved back to November and then to January and then finally to April. And uh, so, so finally in, in April 2022, I was able to go to India and, and actually do the full nine-month grant for, for the India Fulbright. So they didn't, they didn't abridge or shorten my stay at all, which was, which was really wonderful. So and, tell me, yeah. tell me, I, I was kind of going through, I, I, tell me the whole, I want to know the whole story. Tell me the nine months. You're all ready to go. You're probably thinking to yourself, I'm never going to get to India, and it's just not going to happen. This thing is over. You've been planning it out and doing it, and then you get the okay, Take me through. Yeah. Take me through going to India. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. As as you said, there was there was a whole lot of being in limbo before the flight actually left the ground. Right. You know that there, there was you know worry of cancellation or further postponement, and and it was it was all kind of up in the air. Me, you know, for for me being self-employed as a knife maker i had a lot of flexibility that my colleagues and friends didn't and so i i was pretty lucky that you know i, I was i was in the mindset of okay well if this happens it'll be great i'll go to india and i'll do my thing and if it doesn't well i at least i still have a job and i'm working and you know doing other stuff that i really enjoy so i was kind of in that in that limbo place of not really knowing what's going to happen but you know i was going to be okay with any outcome um, and then April came around and, uh, nobody canceled the flights. So I'm, I got on the plane in JFK and got off the plane in Delhi and, and, uh, the Fulbright started from there. So Fulbright, as you mentioned, is a, it's a program that's funded by the U S state department and it is a, it's a, it's a big organization that sends people all around the world for, research purposes. And so, and so we're, India is actually the, the biggest Fulbright program. Um, so it's the, the country to which they send the most American scholars. And so there are a bunch of scholars all who are, who are all going to be studying in India at the same time. And we had a, an orientation in Delhi for a few days, and then we all went to our separate cities. And I was in Udaipur for my proper research. And so after the orientation in Delhi, I flew to Udaipur, and I was the only American studying there at the time. So, um, I was based at the City Palace Museum in Udaipur. That was my affiliate institution. And my project was kind of a two-part project where I was going to be looking at documenting and studying historical Indian swords and daggers in the City Palace Museum. And I was going to be working with craftsmen in Udaipur uh, who are involved in sword making with a specific focus on the craftsmen who are doing kaftgari, which is 
a, a technique for overlaying gold and silver onto an iron surface, and it's used traditionally to decorate weapons. And so um, I wanted to learn this technique of uh, Kaftgari gold overlay, and I, and I wanted to look at historical pieces and uh, with, with the idea that, you know, all of this inspiration and new techniques would, would be applicable to my work in the future. So Kafgari was very interesting because I spent a little bit of time going through your feed, but also kind of researching Kafgari. It's very the the very ornate. Um, the lines are there's a there's a kind of a blacksmith quality to it. Those architectural lines. Um, yes. The, the traditional. I think that it's very. I, I mean, I'm you're gonna you're gonna have to explain it. But what would you say the the main differences between Kafgari and the type of inlay like we say we see other American bladesmiths doing like I, my my mind I think of like uh, we have a I have a friend um, well inlay I mean to think about I think about what uh, what Kyle Royer's doing or or Jerry Fisk is doing what would be right. the difference between the the Kafgari and the traditional and traditional Kafgari and what American inlay guys are doing yeah so so the difference really is inlay versus overlay so with inlay. Uh, if you're not familiar with inlay, inlay, you basically cut a groove into the metal, into the base metal, and you undercut that groove, and then you push you push the gold or whatever the inlay metal is into that groove, and it kind of locks, that undercut locks the m material into place. So and the... then you usually polish off the top so it sits flush with the surface. When you say undercut, it's almost like a dovetail, right? Yes, exactly. Like you're creating like a dovetail so there's like something to wedge the material inside the 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 well that you're cutting out. Precisely. Yeah, so Kaftgari is overlay. It's a it's a very different mechanism by which the gold and silver is attached. And to do Kaftgari, you have to prepare the ground of the base metal with a, a kind of crisscross of very fine scratches, um, like little cuts, which traditionally you do... Well, in India, they do it with a knife. In certain other places, they will do it with a chisel. Um, and there are a couple different overlay techniques around the world. Uh, Japan has its own version, and uh, similar versions were practiced, especially in like Renaissance Italy and Spain. You'll see it on, on a lot of rapiers, this same kind of overlay. But in India, they do it with a, a, a knife that's making these intersecting hatch marks, basically, that creates a, 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 a bunch of really small teeth in the surface of the metal. And those teeth then grab the wire as you push it down um, as you push it down onto the surface. So you can take a really fine gold or silver wire and push it down onto the teeth and the teeth pierce into the wire and then lock it into place. But there's no because you had a great uh, a, a short, I don't know if it was a video on your Instagram of there was two things. One is you were working um, you were working with a guy who was doing a jeweler's hammer. And then there was another one where you were working. Someone, the who were you working with was doing a bolster, and I could and I and I, I saw when he was doing the jeweler's hammer, he was using a knife and making those cross hatchings. And all I could think of is I don't understand. Like I don't understand understand the preparation, but once you make those cross hatchings, are you how are you marking where the stuff is going to go and how does it hold on? Yeah, so there's actually very little in the way of layout oftentimes. Um, you know, for a really experienced maker, they can often just kind of start on with the wire. It's like, it's more like drawing in huh. some ways. 
Um, but you can actually scribe with a with a scribe onto the surface of the after of the, the after the middle. after there's a, a cross hatching. Exactly after the hatching, and, and so you you scribe the general shapes with the sur- w- uh, you know with a, a little fine point scribe, just lightly in the surface, and uh, and actually I should also mention that. Typically, after making these hatch marks and preparing the whole surface, then you you heat blue the surface, so you you give it a little bit of a, a hot oxide, like a blue color, right. so that then those scribe marks show up very clearly. And it also means that the contrast with the gold or silver will be very good and visible. Wow! So then, once the you're using the fine wire, because obviously, you know, when you think of inlay, you're thinking of adding on a ton of material and then kind of like scraping it off at the top so you're trying to right. make everything flush how does it f- so it's it's much more of a finesse thing with kafgari then right it's really kind of like you're not taking anything off afterwards right exactly well and and if you use wire that's too heavy it won't stick to the teeth of the of the surface huh. so typically the wire that they're using is like 38 to 40 gauge wire so it's about the thickness of a human hair or a little thicker huh it's um, amazing very very fine yeah and so so once the entire design is placed on the surface like all the outlines then you fill in with just little side by side lines wherever wherever there's like a larger field of gold or silver and then once the entire sh- design and whatnot is is shaped the way you want it and and on the surface then you burnish it and that burnishing process pushes the wire down into the teeth, and it also pushes down all of the other teeth that aren't covered. And so it makes this very smooth surface where you, you can feel a little bit of a raised lump wherever there's a wire, but it it's it's very smooth, there are no edges to catch on, and it and it really locks the wire into place very securely. Why do you how do you think how do you think Kafgari kind of became as popular? I'm not popular. I don't know if that's the right word, but how do you think, why do you think it became as known at that area that you were at as it was? There, well, that's a good question. And the, the history, the history is kind of interesting actually. So in, in Indian, kind of arms decoration, Kafgari was only one of many techniques that they would use. It, and those techniques also included a true inlay version, which is, uh, that they call Tanishan, which is more similar to Western inlay, though often which mu- with much thinner wire. So they would do Tanishan and Tetula, which is a raised inlay. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, people who are doing that these days in, in the West, but it's certainly done, where... You inlay the gold, but then it sits above the surface a okay. little bit. Um, so there's there's Tanishan, there's Tetula, and then there's Kafgari. And those are kind of the three main ways of applying precious metals. And historically speaking, Tanishan, the true inlay, was was the most valued of the three types. So basically, you know, that, that was the inlay, which is most similar to the Western version, was was the most highly regarded initially. Um, Kafgari was done in... It was in some ways easier and quicker to do. And so uh, it it could be applied for... You know, if you wanted a... a if you wanted a design 
that was going to cover a larger proportion of the surface, Koftgari ah. was a good choice. And later on, if you wanted to design that wasn't going to cost you as much money, then Koftgari was also a good choice. And right. particularly during British colonization and British colonial rule, the markets for decorated weapons changed substantially because initially it was, you know, the Maharajas, the, the kings of the various Rajput kingdoms who were commissioning these and, and all of the, the nobles in India were commissioning these pieces. But after the British colonization, then the British aristocracy was also commissioning a lot of these pieces and they were being imported in, you know, exported from India to Britain to, you know, decorate the smoking rooms of people, um, you know, like, uh, you yeah. know, the, the collection at the Victoria, Victoria and Albert Museum is, you know, they have a huge Indian collection that's all from the late 19th century. Uh, much of it is new work, much of it is older pieces. Um, and, uh, and it has a lot of Kaftgari. And so, so as, as the markets expanded, then in, in some ways the the work cheapened a little bit and Kaftgari became more common and true inlay became a lot less common. I would think, and please, number one is I'm going to mess every single word up. I, so far I got Kaftgari. That's going to be about it. Like yeah. everything else you're going to have to, I'm going to, you're going to have to forgive me. That's going to be about it. But I would think, I would think that Kaftgari, I mean, this is just, an, just based on what our, our conversation, I would think it would be a little bit easier to teach someone how to do as well i have gone back and forth on this i'm i'm actually not sure the thing about koftgari is that it's it's um the quality of the work is entirely dependent upon the skill of the craftsman okay which you know maybe maybe at first hearing, you know, that seems like, oh, okay, that's obvious. That's like how all handicrafts work. But I'm not entirely convinced that it is um, because there are a lot of tools that will make things easier or more precise. And with Koftgari, you're putting down the wire completely manually quite quickly. And there's, and slowing it down doesn't necessarily make it more accurate. Whereas engraving, you can draw out exactly the lines that you're going to follow and then follow them with the engraver and you can see exactly what you're doing because you don't have a little pen in the way. Um, you know, I think, I think there are some, it's easy. It's probably easier to get precise engraving lines as a beginner than it is to get precise Kaftgari lines as a beginner. Because you have, you have, you have more of a track to, to, you have more of like a, an outline that you can follow. Exactly. Exactly. Kaftgari, it has to be a little bit more spur of the moment, um, you know, kind of, you know, creating it as you go. See, that interests me because I was looking at just that bolster. Or no, there was another piece that you you were working on. And yeah. I think it, you could see your fingers and you said, now's the fun time. And it seemed like the layout was so, like, painstaking. Because, you know, you look at the, you know, the composition of the these these symbols. I don't know if it's symbols. These, like, these lines. I don't know what you call them. The elements or whatever. Yeah, it, it's very the field the field of composition is very precise. So to me, to think just like you know, you just keep going. I'm like, I, you have to have some framework to you know for the spatial elements to kind of fit right. Yes, that's absolutely right. And I think that's the hardest part. That's the hardest thing to 
to learn with Kashgari, at least in my own experience. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time with pencil in my hand doing drawings and, you know, ink drawing a lot of surface ornamentation and and motifs that could be used for Kashgari or engraving. And you know, the hardest thing always is symmetry, if you want to draw a symmetrical shape because we're naturally asymmetrical beings being you know right her left hand dominant um and i think that that the difficulty of symmetry and kind of spatial awareness of exactly where your tools are and where your line is that's almost augmented in the process of doing kaftgari so it it's it's even more difficult to get it symmetrical do you uh, know who would have been the best kaftgari guard guy around if he was still alive who Keith herring you know who Keith Haring is? I confess that I don't. Keith Haring is probably one of my biggest influences. He's, he was a graffiti artist in New York during the 80s, 70s, late 70s, early 80s. He became well-renowned for he did this thing called Crack is Whack, and he did these radiant baby. If you saw an image of, of, of what Keith Haring's work looked like, you'd know it immediately. Big lines. He's kind of he did a lot with apartheid. He did a lot of social activism. Yeah. His work is very well renowned in the early '80s. He ended up doing like a absolute vodka bottle. And if you look at the way he paints, their video of him painting, he starts from one corner of these giant canvases in like a laser printer. He'll go through the whole. He'll go through the entire thing without any mark. No drawings or marks he'll have a huge tarp and he'll have this giant two inch paintbrush and he'll go from one start start from one side all the way to the end and you're just like his spatial awareness was so not learned it was yep. something that you under that he understood at this sub critical you know subatomic level that it was just he knew how to do spacing and that would just seem to me that's the first thing i thought of when i was looking at that was this idea of spacing because i'm still not 100 percent sure i understand how the gold or the the um the wire stays where you put it like yeah. i get the idea that there's teeth but I, i'm still just like okay so the lines even when you mash them in they're going to spread a very specific amount of room and how do you make sure that they're straight when you mush them in and they're going to be little you know little bumps where you didn't mush them in right and I'm just, you know, it's just shockingly amazing to me. Yeah, it's it's actually, I mean, once you once you see it done in person or you get your hands on it and try it, it's it's not particularly complex. The, you know, the the principle of how it's done. I guess the closest analogy is like if you have a piece of Velcro, and you took a little bit of yarn and just made designs on the Velcro. Wherever you put the oh. yarn, it's gonna stick. You know. That makes it that now that makes it under. I understand now. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying now. That yeah. is. So, what would you say would be like when you? I mean, you're now you've studied with Kafgari and you've studied all these things. If if let's just say the the common person who kind of understood what they were looking at, not like a professional, you know, what would be the what would be the go to symbols to know that. It's going to be Kafgari versus anything else. Is there is there any standard must-have you know uh, traits? Yeah. So characteristics. I guess I guess maybe what you're asking is so if if you look at say a historical piece or a, a you know a, a piece that somebody has made, then um, like how to tell whether it's Kafgari or whether it's true inlay? Is that kind of what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. So Kafgari has a couple hallmarks. The one. 
um, I, I think the most obvious is that crosshatching. So even after burnishing, the crosshatching will still be present in a piece that's done as Koftgari. Right. Um, it, you, sometimes you have to look really closely, and especially on older pieces, sometimes that will start to corrode away, and then it, it, it could be difficult. Um, on historical pieces, if there's any corrosion, and uh, if any of the gold has come off, usually on an inlay piece, you'll be able to see the see the channel that was cut, and right. on a Koftgari piece, you, you won't, obviously. Um, you know, on a perfectly finished piece, the other thing you can look for is whether that gold stands up a little bit off the surface, whether there's a little bit of dome wherever that wire is. And if, the, if that wire has a little bit of texture, then chances are it's Koftgari and not inlay, because inlay is generally scraped or filed or, right. or you know, otherwise polished after, after the inlay is complete. I would think that that cross hatching kind of like on the negative space would be just incredible contrast to those lines. Yes, it really can be. It, I, I think it it can add a really, really interesting depth. texture in depth. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So how I one of the funny things about following you on your trip was at one point you write, okay, listen, maybe I should turn this into a food blog. Yes. Because the, the food became... What what's interesting is is you're an incredibly polite person in general. <laughs> every time I've ever we've ever talked or ever you're extraordinarily polite. Come from a very polite family. It's just like you know, I would think that you'd be the greatest guest in an Indian home. Well, I I certainly did my best to to be the best that I could, and and I had ample opportunity to be a guest in Indian homes. I mean, so. Part of it has to do with the Indian culture in general. I mean, and I guess I should add a caveat, the Indian culture is a total misnomer. The culture changes every every hundred miles you go in India. There'll be a completely different culture, completely different food, completely different language. Um, but one common thread in Indian cultures is this welcoming of guests. They have this phrase that they say, a guest is a god. And so it's actually a blessing to bring somebody into your house and to feed them and to give them, you know, a hospitable treatment. And so it was, it was wonderful for me. I, I would be walking on the road and people would invite me in for chai or if I, you know, buy something at a, um, buy something at a store, then they'd invite me, you know, the shopkeeper would invite me to his home, that sort of thing. And I also had three or four families that kind of in my first week or two there really adopted me kind of into their family circles and, and would invite me regularly for dinner and, and I would spend time with them and their children and, and really get to know them. So I, I really had, I feel like of, of all the things that I took away from India, these friendships and personal relationships that I cr cultivated are, are some of the most important. Question for you. I'm thinking, to me, it's incredible. However, if I'm going into a shop for, a, for, for chai or whatever, yeah. anything, and the shopkeeper invites me for dinner, do you, can you say no? Or do, um, are, you just like, are you like, all right, well, I'm in this town for a little bit, and I don't want to sound like a, you know, not a nice person. I yeah, say I mean, yes. I suppose you could. I made a point of trying to say yes as often as I possibly could. Um, 
they're, they're generally quite persistent with invitations, so it's difficult to say no, and even if you say no, they'll, they'll really twist your arm for, about it for a while. Um, if you have a really good excuse why you can't go, then that's one thing, but generally speaking, it's best to say yes and just go, and, and, and I, sp I feel that especially being in, another, being in another culture, the more open you can be to the people and their way of doing things, and the more you know, accepting somebody's invitation is a gift in and of itself. And so right. to accept somebody's invitation, um, you know, that's, that's something that they will appreciate. And, and I think it goes a long way toward, toward making friends and con in cultivating relationships. But at the same time, as an American, you also don't want to be, uh, you don't want to, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say American, I'm going to say me. I wouldn't want to be an imposition. Well, like, that would be that, that would be the hard thing for me to, change in, in terms of going to this other culture they're just like yo you're coming in here you're i would be like i just don't want to impose yeah well that's just something that you know in in india you just need to kind of let go of that that impulse <laughs> is yeah. frankly i mean it's it's just not it's not something that people worry about you're you're not an imposition again you're a blessing your presence there is a blessing it is a positive impact on their day and oh. you know even if it is you know, yeah. No, no matter the circumstances, if they can welcome you and if you accept their invitation, that is a good thing. You know what, though? I'm to be honest with you. Between you and me, I think I'd become very arrogant from it. I'd be like, "Hey, come on! You're gonna invite me in. I'm a blessing. You gotta let me in. We gotta have something to eat." You know? <laughs> I, I think I, I don't know if I would be. I, I think they would go. The power would go to my head. You think it, that that shift would happen so fast between? Uh, no, no, wouldn't worry about it wouldn't a, be the burden. To I would. Be... <laughs> I'll tell you. I'll tell you how my mind would work. I would be, I would, the first couple of weeks I'd have a problem with it. And then somebody, I'd have to shake myself loose and then I'd get too comfortable with it. That's what would happen. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I'd be like, I'd be, uh, I'd be, uh, unreal, unreasonable. That's really unreasonable. I go from polite to unreasonable over a course of three weeks. There you go. That's, that's how three I weeks. Well, so, three. so book your trip for two and a half and then you'll be fine. Well, you know, I, last week I was talking to Jason Knight and I was telling him that my father served in India during World War II. Oh. And he was part of China, Burma, India during World War II. And so he, when I was growing up, there was a lot of Indian culture that we were, I was being exposed to. And I don't know if you know how well you know New York City, but um, 6th Street, I'm sure you probably know, is is like one solid block of Indian restaurants. Oh. Oh, dude, Sixth Street in the, in the, on the East Village, in the East Village from uh, First Avenue to Second Avenue. It's as if there's one main kitchen and there's a trolley that goes from every single one because it's like literally one next to each other. It's 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 crazy. So growing up, we, we used to go. That's my the Indian my Indian experience was going to Sixth Street with my dad, and we would just go to these restaurants and 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 he would tell me about India and he would tell me what it was like, and um, the food Indian food is unbelievable. Yes, what was it like? when you got there? Mm. Well, so, I mean, the, the way to really experience Indian food, the best way to experience Indian food is in Indian households. I mean, Indian restaurants in India are great. There, there are a lot of really great restaurants and you will get great food. But the, the most authentic and oftentimes the tastiest food is the stuff that people are cooking in their homes. And so, you know, when I, when I first arrived at the orientation and stuff, yeah, we were, we were eating at restaurants. But when I when I finally made it to Udaipur and I had these families that I was, you know, 
able to eat dinner with and that was that was really the best and and the food is incredible um food also varies region to region so i was in rajasthan and in southern rajasthan and so um rajasthan is known for food being rather spicy quite oily and um and with a lot of garlic uh and it's um they generally eat bread with their with their meals rather than rice so bread meaning roti chapati like a thin a thin flat bread and um what else about rajasthani food oh lots of ghee lots of ghee ghee if you don't know is is a clarified butter Um, right and and it's delicious so how would you describe i mean when we what if you in what would you say in udas udapur yes what was like this like when you what do they know what is the food like there so the 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 famous dish in udaipur and all of rajasthan is dal bati churma um so that breaks down into three words dal you've probably heard before is is sure. lentils it's essentially lentils it's a, it's like a, a a bean a pulse that you grow and then you cook into this soup like a like a thin soup um that's spicy uh, lots of red chili in it and then bati is a particular kind of bread that you find almost only in Rajasthan and it's a very hard round uh roll like bread roll unleavened it's basically just flour water and a little bit of oil made as dense as possible and it was traditionally uh, a food that could be eaten you know in long trips in the desert and that sort of thing it was very portable it didn't perish very quick you know it was it was it was pretty shelf stable for a while you know so if you needed to to bring it on your travels through the desert that was that was appropriate um so the dal and the bati you eat together the bati you crunch it up into little crumbs and you pour the dal on top of it and you mix it up with your hands and you eat it by the fistful and it's um and it's incredible it's huh. so delicious and then churma is like a sweet bati that's been uh that's been crumbled. Well, there are a couple different kinds, but it's, it's anyway, it's a sweet, a sweet in, in Indian sweets. There are hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of Indian sweets, but this is uh, quite a simple one with, it's really just really flour and uh, what they, with in jaggery. Um, jaggery is a, uh, an unprocessed sugar or like a less processed sugar. So it tastes a little bit like molasses. So they mix those two things together and you have this really lovely sweet to eat after or uh, during eating your dal and bati. <clears throat> was India everything you've ever... Was was India what you expected it to be or better? Better. Or worse? By far. I mean, I went into India with relatively few expectations in some ways. I mean, I all I knew about India going into India was that it was going to be completely different from... <laughs> rural upstate New York and right. where I live and what I do. And so I was kind of open to whatever. But what I didn't anticipate was being able to meet and get to know so many people and how people would be so interested in me and my culture and really how compelling and, and welcome, uh, compelling it would feel and how, how welcomed I would feel in their culture and their cultural traditions and their, you know, families. So I guess what I wonder is, you know, with the Fulbright scholarship, 
I felt I felt like talking to you last episode, you were really very focused on the research. Mm. Do you feel as though it was it be for you as a person for Jordan Lamote? Was it, it be did it become more about the work or about the the people and and the, and the experiences you had as in in being embedded into this culture? Well, I think it became more about the people for for me in terms of the the most important takeaway for me. Now, I'll add to that that I don't think the two are completely separate. Um, and, you know, a lot of my work was trying to meet a lot of the craftsmen in India who were doing all sorts of things related to sword making. Some of the Kaftgari artists and the engravers and the blacksmiths and the knife grinders and sharpeners and the manufacturers. And so meeting all of these people and getting to know their families was all kind of part of the same mission there. Right. Um, and then also, you know, b- being able to see historical pieces was also really valuable. But again, the more people that I met, the more opportunities I had to meet craftsmen and see historical pieces. And so I, I feel like it was all linked together. Yeah, I felt that way. Because, I mean, like I said, following you along, in my mind, I'm thinking we're going to see some gallery pieces. And all I'm seeing are pictures of you with these beautiful families and they have their arms around yeah. you. And they're, you know, it's like... <clears throat> It was it was very much along the lines of and and then when as soon as you started maybe I should do a food blog, I could tell that it was almost I mean my opinion was it was seemed as though and obviously Instagram is Instagram, it was more about like the this the the families and the relationships you were creating as opposed to like, you know let's talk about you know the work. Yes, yeah, I I think that's true. I think maybe my Instagram is a little bit skewed in that direction as well in terms that's of fine. my presence. I mean I I did come back with. A couple thousand photos of swords and daggers and other arm, you know, arms and armor. Um, sometimes I was constrained by my ability to take photos. So in the City Palace Museum, for instance, their gallery is closed to the public right now for for renovations and conservation. And so I wasn't able to take photos in their in their collection, even though I was able to study and look at and draw, you know, hand, a a. a decent number of their swords um when you when you were doing the research and this is one of the things this 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 is kind of like this episode this uh, with jordan is almost like a part two i'm doing this three-part series (laughs) and the three-part series was i had uh jason a night on uh last week and it was talking about the concept of being a conduit to generations yeah and a lot of this came from thinking and i haven't i'm not telling you who next week's master bladesmith is but don't worry about that so i felt as though you know for years i've been talking to my friend jesse savage who um is a very dear friend and he and i have been talking about the role of the modern day blacksmith and that's when he started was doing podcasts and i was doing podcasts we would always he and i would always bounce around that question we would talk to people what's the role of the modern day blacksmith And what I've been getting to the point of is as teachers and as master bladesmiths, you become this conduit to different generations. Yeah. You know, talking to Jason Knight, he was a student of Don Fogg. He was a student of the old guard. Now he's teaching. If you look at the guys he's teaching, you know, they're the best. I mean, they're still the best of the best. I mean, he he learned from the best of the best, and now he's teaching the best of the best. When you have this kind of like you're, you're part of this generational conduit, and I see with your work, as a blaster bladesmith too, 
your direction is so far more interesting. Not far more interesting, it's different because it's very historically based. Mm. And your research going to India and learning about Kafgari and learning about these things, I feel as though you are going to kind of deliver, not deliver, but it's it's helping kind of keep this gener this information alive. Yeah. Well, that's that's my goal and intention. And I think, you know, it's interesting. We have this we have this narrative. I mean, I think I think it's really admirable that the narrative you're drawing of like, you know, um, the conduit, the conduit of you know between generations, the the kind of continuation of this age old craft. And in some ways, India is in a in a difficult position right now, and the the people who are doing handicrafts in India are in a difficult position right now because the market, the markets that they have access to, are often not very conducive to, you know, to doing this handicraft and and making a good salary. People are not encouraging their kids to go into this sort of thing because it's very hard to make a living. It's it's um. You know, and, and a lot of the younger generation is not interested in, say, learning Kaftgari or right. you know, going into blacksmithing. And we're lucky in the U.S. right now that there's a resurgence in interest in both making things by hand and purchasing handmade goods. And those two go together very well. And, you know, that, that hasn't really hit India yet. I think they're in some ways still in a more industrial type um, kind of manufacturing environment where everybody is haggling and bargaining for the lowest price job at in in the smallest amount of time, and so it it means that sometimes the quality suffers, or or people feel like they're getting ripped off when they're when they're making their own hand handicraft. Um, and so I feel like for me going to India, I wanted to in terms of what I had to bring, I wanted to to kind of inspire people to to break out a little bit of of that kind of haggling market which is a which is a hard thing to do and it's not necessarily within my control or even within their control but you know to to kind of try to open up this dialogue between India and the US in this particular field so that maybe they will have access to some some better markets that will enab enable them to realize some more of the artistic potential that they have and and um and be able to make you know higher quality and and uh, more interesting more interesting to them more artistically fulfilling work but that's i mean that's i mean love it or, or hate it social media has allowed us to be able to kind of capture things to show to other people mm. you know you're 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 an, you are become an aggregate of information you know and if you're and if and if you and if people are have become become interested in it then all of a sudden, you know, there's more eyes on it. A perfect example. I mean, this isn't the perfect example, but it's fine. You had Will Stelter, good old Will Stelter, came and visited you in in in, in India. I yeah. mean, you met Will Stelter on the internet. Let's face it, we all met Will Stelter on the I internet. I think actually, and Will, <laughs> I I was I, my Will introduced himself to me at Blade Show, my first Blade Show uh, in 2018. So I guess I did actually meet him in person. But then, of course, most of our our uh, our interactions have been on the internet since then yeah speaking of which i he introduced himself to me he tells the story with any any time you've ever you ever slight will stelter yeah he'll bring it up joyfully 
he'll he'll joyfully bring it. He 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 said the first time he introduced himself to me, I blew him off, which is complete. That's just not true, <laughs> Will. I, and Will called me up last week. And Will and I are gonna get together at some point soon. I'm a big Will Stelter fan, but the fact remains that what was it like when Will came to visit you? Oh, we had a ball. I mean, it was so much fun. So I was anticipating this for a while. I mean, I I just kind of reached out and said, "Hey, you wanna do you wanna come?" visit India and we can either make something or go and visit museums. We'll, we'll figure it out. Anyway, when he, a little bit before he came, I kind of developed, devised this plan with Rahul and Sandeep, who are the two Kaftgari artists from whom I was studying. Right. And so Rahul and Sandeep and Will and I went on a road trip around Rajasthan and went to a lot of the major museums that have arms collections in Rajasthan. And so we, like the four of us going together was just so much fun because, I mean, I like hanging out with Will. He's a, he's a good guy. Um, but then, you know, in addition to that, you have, you have four distinct kind of angles at which to look, you know, angles to look at all of these pieces that we were seeing. So, you know, when I look at a sword... I'm going to see something different than when Will looks at a sword and he's going to see something different than Sandeep and he's going to see something different than Rahul. And so huh. to have all of these four perspectives and to be able to discuss among us these collections that we were seeing, I feel like I learned more than I would have just going by myself. Um, and so that was, that was a really, you know, fruitful, fruitful time. And then I also got to, to introduce him to all sorts of people in, in Udaipur and, and that was lots of fun as well. One of the things I was talking to uh, Jason Knight about last last week, and I kind of want to kind of see what you think, is we were talking about you know the kukri, and we were talking about his, you know, kind of grabbing on to the kukri and kind of creating his version of the kukri, and he explained how you know how he'd seen them and how he wanted to you know make his version of it. Yeah, I found as though I feel as though, and you're the this I really actually was thinking about you when we were talking about this. I feel as though craft and art, craft and art, when I say art, I'm talking about like, like paintings and, and wall hangings and, and, you know, the, the, the opulence of the opulence of early art and early craft. Yeah. They both kind of went to a very similar way and craft kind of where, when I say like paintings and I see, I talk about old, like medieval paintings and, and, and like stuff in churches and stuff like mm-hmm. that. It was more about the technique and the uh, the, the art in and of itself as opposed to the artist, hmm. and I feel the same way with like swords and the 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 uh, the symbolism behind the craftsmanship of the swords and stuff like that, and then art started to take this change where it started to become more about the artist hmm. and the artist interpretation of the work, and now I'm starting to see, especially with American knife makers and sword makers, it's the same thing. Because now it isn't, you know, this, you know, standard. A kukri used to be very standard. Like, I've seen a number of kukris. My dad had a kukri brought back from World War II. And I've seen kukris that look exactly like the one he brought back from, you know, 1945. And they're like, there's a specific, you know, you don't know the maker of it. You know, there's a standards to it. There's like this ceremonial aspect of it. And then you kind of like start to creep. And now we've kind of come to this point with art and craft where it's kind of like, you know, the craftsperson by what you're looking like Nick Angers, you know, his knives when you see Mm -hmm. 
Joshua Prince. You know his knives when you see him. And then there's this, so there's this almost like this, there's this, like, it goes from what it was, the object that what it was, to now it's not really matter, it's the person's interpretation. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. And I would say that in some ways, the way that both art and craft are practiced in India right now is more in this old style, you know, people don't sign their work f for the right. for the most part. Um, they really... They they are kind of stewards of this tradition. They wank it in the way that has been done in a right. long time. But if you ask them to copy somebody else's work or do something, they they'll do that no problem. It doesn't it doesn't matter to them. They're they're like manufacturers. They're like a vessel through which this art is continued. Um, That's it. And and the idea of like a sole authorship piece or of wanting this to be you know to to naming it as your own. That's kind of kind of foreign to them. Right. For, for the most part. And historically, there are a few counterexamples. I mean, there there are famous swordsmiths who are known from earlier times. I mean, um, uh, like, I guess, getting outside of India a little bit, Haji Sungar in uh, Turkey, in Ottoman Turkey, was a very famous uh, bladesmith who did sign his work. Asadullah was a, was a Persian bladesmith who signed a lot of his work but then there were of course many many copies of their work signed with their names not made by them um because it would because it would sell more easily if it has if it had that name attached to it um, but would those with those particular bladesmiths would you be able to without their signature would you be able to know that it was them well was it in and of it's because the idea of the idea of these ceremonial pieces like nowadays in the, especially in the united states knife making there's not, they're not really ceremony. They're not ceremonial things, you know? And so it becomes, I mean, like I was, when I was talking to, once again, with Jason Knight, you know, the, the kukri was every, every, you know, all the different reasonings behind what a kukri does and what you can do with it, what you can't do with it. Every groomsman has one. They're much more ceremonial and there's not that case in the United States. So it becomes less about the ceremony and more about the, the pro the 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 maker making something right right well they were ceremonial pieces and they were also weapons i mean sh the the shamshirs that these sword makers were making were were used in battle and and they were used to outfit armies um and so they were used in ceremonies and and as weapons um how yeah. how do you feel your master bladesmith changed the way you view like, all right, you get your you get your master bladesmith, awesome accomplishment. P.S. After your year, last year was like the most people to, it was like almost it was like sixty people went to become journeyman smith. This is like a you know an incredible opportunity. You get your master bladesmith designation. You 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 wipe the floor with the Cobb Center. You you own. It's the Jordan Lamote show. And I'm sorry, I'm saying it. You don't have to. You don't have to agree. Whatever. You head over to India. What is your? How are you kind of taking it in, taking the knives and the swords in with this new, like, you know, mm. you have this. You're you're now you have you've reached a level of acceptance from these, you know, heavy duty knife makers in the world. Yeah, in some ways, I I had to leave that all behind because it didn't matter to right. anybody I was working with, really. I mean, so a couple of the people to whom I were was able to explain that, you know, they, a couple of people would understand that. Like Rahul and Sandeep, they understood what, what a master bladesmith 
was after I explained to them, okay, what's the process and what's the what's the American Bladesmith Society and that sort of thing. But but most of the craftsmen that I've met, you know, don't don't have any awareness of that or really of what people are looking for and um yeah what the what the criteria of judging are they they don't understand and then and then yeah. in the museum context like people were mostly just asking if i was working on a phd most of which which then i would have to say no i'm not working on a phd i'm just an independent scholar and they're like oh okay um so you know <laughs> um in some ways like in the sword research world the master bladesmith doesn't really mean anything as a as a title now right. having said that i think that i i do bring you know in in the research world i think having extensive knowledge on the actual manufacture of knives makes me look at swords differently and um and i think that that's a really valuable thing i think being able to to talk with the craftsmen about the specific specificities of how they're working and that sort of thing that was that was really valuable, and I think it's a valuable addition to the kinds of scholarship that can and are being done. Um, I talked to Matt Parkinson uh, last year, and he was saying the same thing. He was invited down to the the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art, and he was there to look at swords. And he said his experience as I mean, Matt Parkinson is an awesome knife maker, bladesmith, just no question about sure. it, and terrific guy. Yeah, and he's and he said that he could spot fake knives, and he could spot the fake swords that they didn't know were fake. Right, like there was history in terms of the understanding. And when I say master bladesmith, I was I guess I was, I was it was a clumsy way of asking. You know, you've you've reached a level based on your understanding of. The process. Yeah. That's really what a master bladesmith, you talk to most master bladesmiths and you're probably one of them. You'll say it's not the, you know, it's not like you've reached the pinnacle of the mountain. It's basically the starting point of now let's get some, and then now I have an un, a firm understanding of how I want to get things done. Yeah. I, and it's at a level of what people are accepting. I see that MS stamp as a, as a, a seal of commitment to the craft more than anything. Um, you know, it's, it's saying, Yes, I'm committed to continuing to learn and practice this craft. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's how I see it. And yeah, and in terms of like being able to spot fakes and stuff, that's also very very pertinent in India. I mean, India abounds with historical pieces, and that has historically been their biggest export item. Um, when the British were there, the British wanted old Indian pieces. They didn't want the new Indian pieces. Now, when people go to India as tourists as collectors and that sort of thing they want they generally want to look they, they want to buy the antique pieces because there's some perceived value in an antique uh that's not per, you know that's not carried into you know a, a you know a contemporary new made uh handicraft piece and so um and so a, a big part of the market that craftsmen of all sorts have been uh you know have been engaged in is is making fakes making fake historical pieces making pieces that are designed yeah. to look old and they will tell you that on the street um you know oh this is a very old sword the old, old blade um or whatnot or you know and then you so you do have to kind of look and see okay yeah is is this actually old or was this probably made last year? Or maybe it was made 20 years ago. And how old is it? Was it made at the late, you know, 
the end of the 19th century or do you think this is a like a you know 18th century piece um and and so you know working on developing that eye uh is is also something that i think my my knowledge of bladesmithing and and that sort of thing has has helped me in that regard as well when you were looking at all these swords and the research you were doing through the museums, was there anything you were surprised by? Hmm. Like construction or... Yeah. You you think, you know, you think that like, I mean, everything is so ornate. You think maybe, I mean, they didn't have the equipment we have now. You know, maybe, I don't know, maybe is there something that you, that was surprising well, to you? Well, you know, <laughs> in some ways, like Indian arms and armor are so varied that it's hard to be surprised by anything in some ways. Like, anything can be done. There are some astonishing pieces out there, for sure. I would say that some of the some of the most impressive things that I saw were, were really, you know, carefully chiseled pieces, um, you know, really, like, with knives and swords, well, I guess mostly swords, that had, you know, very ornate, uh, you know, chiseled, figures like animal figures and uh heads and that sort of thing like chiseled chiseled into the in three dimensions um i guess actually you know thinking here one of the things that surprised me the most is the qatar so a qatar is a um it's a dagger it's a push dagger basically it has a triangular shaped blade and a and, and two bars that kind of go on either side of the arm, and then it has these two handle grips, basically. Um, and this is a tr this is a exclusively Indian-style dagger. You won't see this outside of India. And anyway, th these, so these Qatars have a lot of different kind of methods by which they're made, and in some ways they're still a little bit enigmatic to me. I, I don't really know how many of these blades were made because they're so common. And many of the people who I talked to insist that Qatars were cast and that the blades were often cast, which really surprised me. I guess, you know, that was, of all the things, that surprised me the most. I am not 100% certain that that is the case, but it's hard to find another compelling, um, another compelling technique for some of these Qatars that have these really deep fullers that are all precise and very similar blade to blade. Cast steel? Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, obviously many of them weren't cast. You can, if you look carefully, you can see uh, braze joints and that sort of thing where the, where the various pieces were put together. And a lot of the finest Wootz blades, you know, f uh, crucible steel blades, were not cast because that the forging is important to the process of of getting the pattern um but there are a lot of plain steel blades that look like they may have been cast because there aren't chisel marks mm. and you would really expect to see chisel marks in fullers that One are that the, deep it was interesting watching seeing pictures of you f doing some forging you and will had done some forging and then there was this one part where you were using one of those, what I would think of those, I, I've seen uh, ha power hammers or mechanical hammers, the like the ones you're using where the die is basically, uh, you know, 12 inches from the ground yeah. and you're and they, they dig out a pit 
So you're sitting there with your feet in the pit. So your eye level, instead of, you know, dies for a power hammer, is usually just a little bit over about waist height. Right. Now your dies are down by the ground and you're actually sitting in a, you know, your feet are in a pit while you're, you know, you're at the level of the, at the level of the hammer. What was it like forging in India? Um, so, yeah, that was actually really great ergonomic setup i went to a bunch of different shops that had power hammers and they all had slightly different techniques one of them was just plain on the ground and and the the fella there was just sitting on the ground and you know with his you know just operating the the treadle on with his feet i didn't try that hammer the only one i tried is the one that you mentioned where i was sitting in a pit and the the ergonomics of that setup were really great and actually i think it's pretty pretty common in the old industrial shops in europe and america as well that uh, not to have a pit in the ground per se, but to have workers seated as they're as they're doing their forging. There's a lot of advantages to being seated. Um, primarily that your your arms are a lot more stable because you don't sway back yeah. and forth quite so much. So and, and then not to mention the you can you can work much longer hours without fatigue because you're not standing, obviously. My old my old boss Ed Mack, who was the who was the original owner of the Center for Metal Arts, he used to when we were working on railings, working on the power hammers, he used to say, you know, we should put in some Boswin's chair, Boswain's chairs, mm. which was like a rope. He had this idea of a rope with a swing, basically. Yep. And we looked at him like he was nuts. We were just like, we're not putting fucking. I'm pardon me, we're not putting <laughs> swings in the in the shop to to go from hammer to hammer. We're not doing that. And it turns out that that was not uncommon back in no, the day I think... to have these like sw- seats with with swing on swings. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty decent uh, solution to you know getting tired of standing on concrete all the time. That I would I would just swing right into the into the jaws. There's just no way I would like mess up and swing into the jaws. But I, but what was it like? What was it like when you got to you're 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 embedded in this culture. You're you're having a great time, and then you get this opportunity to actually make. You made a small knife with a flap wheel disc, and you made these little knives. What was it? What was it like working in India? Um, well, so you know, most of most of the work that I did was at Rahul and Sandeep's shop at their little studio. So they're, they're Kaftgari artists, so they don't really have a full blacksmith shop, but they did have a little um, kind of second house, if you will, that had a little courtyard where I could set up my own little shop. So I had a forge in a tiny anvil there, and I was able to hammer out some stuff and heat treat and that sort of thing in the, in the forge and anvil, or in, the, in the forge. And, uh, and then I was doing the, doing the work like most of the handwork in their studio. I did go down to, there's a a knife manufacturer right down the road from them that had a bigger grinding wheel set up. And so I used that to, to grind out my blades. I mean, I was, I was operating with pretty minimal, um, pretty minimal resources in terms of the machinery that I was, that I had access to. Mostly because I didn't have time or funding to like build a whole shop. If I were to, right. if I were to, you know, relocate to India, which I'm not intending to do, but if I were to, you know, in a in a certain amount of time, I could, I could put together a shop that would be, you know, I would say as functional as the shop that I have here in terms of the capabilities. But in India, seldom are all of those things done under one roof. I only went to one or two manufacturers where they really make 
knives start to finish under one roof. Usually there's a separate guy who does the forging and a separate guy who does the uh, the grinding and then a separate guy who does the handles. They, they all go to different craftsmen. So I did have to bounce around between a couple of different shops in order to get all the machines that I needed. Um, do you think you gain, does you, how do you think your work is going to change from, from, from this nine months in India? Cause it has yeah. to, it's going to have some sort well, of Well, I think the, the, probably the biggest influence on my work is going to be having looked at all these historical pieces because there is so much inspiration that, to be drawn from the ver variety of forms just physical forms that you see in indian weapons and the variety of construction techniques and and then the v variety of decorations and embellishments the the different floral patterns and geometric patterns and i want to incorporate a lot of those into my into my work so hmm. i think you can expect to i see would some think of that. that i would i could i would think that like nine months in a foreign country where you're just like embedded and enjoying the culture. I would think that it's changed you. You've taken things. I Here's an example. Mm. My college roommate, Miles, is one of my favorite people on the planet. I was his, He was my freshman year roommate and my senior year roommate. <laughs> and then we, we had a studio together. He took his junior year off and, and lived in Indonesia and Papua New Guinea. Mm. When he came back, it re, and he was a sculptor, it really changed the way he worked. It would not only change the way he worked, it changed the way he interacted. Like he really came back, imparted, and not like you know you see like not like Tarzan. He didn't come back with like, like with like necklaces and boar's tooth necklace, you know, nose things. But he really came back with a different understanding, coming back from a different culture. His work changed, but he also kind of like took on a little bit of his experience in Indonesia and Papua New Guinea. Yeah. How do you think you've, have you taken back anything that you're kind of keeping with you in terms of the way you want to live? Oh, gosh. Is that too hard of a question? Well, it's a, it's a big question, and I think in some ways it, it remains to be seen, you know, as, as time goes on. I haven't been back all that long, just like a little over a month. Um, I mean, I, you know, the, the my connections to the people there are, are something that I do want to keep. And, um, you know, the, the food and that sort of thing, like, like the, you know, I still try to cook Indian food when I can. I'm trying to maintain my ability to speak Hindi as much as I can. Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, in terms of the way I interact as a person or, uh, you know, my, my work in general, um, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I think maybe maybe the people around me could judge better than I could in terms of how how I changed. But I think I I think I did develop, you know, a certain kind of increased confidence in myself and what I'm doing and my work and and that sort of thing having having just gone and and experienced so many other ways of doing things. And now you're going to be a better host. Oh, Obviously. certainly. <laughs> you, know, you, you have no choice. You have no choice. Now you're on the hook. Every guest is a yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I would. You're gonna you're gonna let everybody in your right, house. Right, right. I would I would love if some of my Indian friends could come and visit. Um, you know, so we'll see if maybe that will happen sometime down the road. But and then they're gonna know how awful 
the, the hosting situation at home and regular you're going to take them down to the gas station you're going to they're going to think that the gas station guys are going to bring them home for dinner and you're going to be lucky <laughs> if the gas station doesn't put a couple bullets in them. oh no <laughs> you know i mean the most i mean you can't be you can't make it more less hospitable than you know most of america especially upstate oh. new york it's no fun no no disrespect <laughs> intended it depends where you go. There's definitely some rural communities that that have some of the same kind of hospitality, but yeah, not everywhere. I mean, you go up to where Jesse is. It, there's some uh, Jesse. All the guys up in Vermont is Vermont isn't known for being super duper hospitable. Don't bring them over there. Yeah. I'm just kidding, Vermont. I'm just Vermont's kidding, very hospitable if your family's been there for seven generations. That's right. That's right. I tell you what, I've made a lot of jokes about people from Vermont and New Hampshire. Not a lot of jokes, but I'm just like, there is definitely a type. Yep. There's a, definitely a type. And I don't know if it's going to, I think the people coming from India will have a culture shock. Yeah, probably. Probably. You know? So, and I know that your mom spent a lot of time in India. How has, I mean, do you guys, do you think that, you, I don't, She did she write about India or she was a so teacher actually, in India? No, my mom has not spent much time in India. I think, oh. um, you know, she studied a lot of dance. She she studied some Indian dance when she was in Boston. Um, but actually she came to India for the first time when I was there just to visit. Oh. Uh, and so, huh. you know, she had the opportunity to meet a lot of the families that I knew. And I think she was really grateful for that. Um, but we had, we had lots of fun just, you know, hanging out and I, I really enjoyed introducing her to, to all the folks that I knew. What would you say, was there any moments of, were you scared at all? Um, yeah, there was, there was one instance that I was a little bit scared. I was traveling with some friends on a train in Bihar. Bihar this was one of the times, one of the only times that I made it out of Rajasthan. So Bihar is another state in India, and it's kind of notorious for being dangerous for tourists. Um, there are just a lot of muggings and stuff that happened. And there was a there was a guy on the train who was looking pretty creepily at everyone, and we were pretty sure um, that he was also carrying a pistol and flaunting it to people, um, mostly me and my three other American friends. So we, we got off that train pretty quickly and got our cab to the airport and weren't mugged. So that was good. But that was the only time that I was really scared. Other than that, I oh. feel like, especially in Rajasthan, people are just so welcoming and, and um, I never, I never really felt scared. That see, that see, I, when I think of being scared, like I don't think of crime. Mm. I think of almost, I think of almost being alone. Like, I feel like, feeling being scared is that is to me it's almost that homesickness feeling you have like you you're lacking a degree of confidence you're not in a place that you're comfortable with mm. and you feel as though you know that homesick yeah. feeling that to me probably is the worst feeling you can yeah have. it's true the only times i really felt homesick were when i was actually physically ill and i couldn't make it out of my apartment you know it's it's a lot yeah. of it's a lot of effort being in a foreign country, um, like just a lot of emotional effort, a fair bit of physical effort, just like going place to place. Um, there are certain parts of the parts of the experience in India that that are, um, I think, hostels too strong a word, but but they they take a lot of dealing with. I mean, like um, you know, having to negotiate with the cab drivers, for instance, to get a reasonable fare and 
you know, having to having to tell people that you you know, you know, walk past the people who are calling out to you from their stores to have you come in or, you know, who are constantly asking, Hey, where are you from? Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're just being on the street is a, is a lot of sensory overload. Right. And sometimes when I was feeling sick, then, you know, I'd be, it, it would feel hard to do anything. And so then I would feel a little bit homesick. Um, cause you were, you were, you kind of stuck out like a sore Oh thumb. yeah. I mean, especially when I got there, I mean, Udaipur is a tourist city. So usually there are a lot of white people there, a lot of Europeans, um, and uh, and a lot of Australians, people from New Zealand, um, like they those people come a lot to to Udaipur and in, in in particular. And uh, when I got there, there was nobody because it was COVID, and and it had right. been COVID for two years. So all of the businesses were really starved for for tourists, which is usually where they get all their money. And so I got a lot of attention there, positive and. Um, I guess exhausting. exhausting as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that was, that was sure. Something, sometimes it, it just felt like, Oh, I want, I just want to stay, stay in my apartment a little bit or, you know, yeah. um, like I don't have the energy, were you, but were you worried about COVID when you were no, there? No, not at all. I mean, I mean, I, I guess by the time I went to India, I had been vaccinated three times and I had gotten it once. And, so I wasn't really worried for myself about getting it. Um, and uh, nobody else really seemed to be worried about it. I mean, in in uh, in Udaipur, I mean, it didn't hit Udaipur very hard in general. I mean, they they huh. they were not nearly as hard hit as the big metro cities like Mumbai and Delhi. Um but nobody was wearing masks or social distancing or anything. They basically just were acting like it had never happened, except for the fact that there were no tourists there. I wonder, I wonder, and this is, I mean, this is just speculation. Do you think that like countries, developing countries are a little bit more used to sickness? Um, perhaps. I mean, they definitely have stronger immune systems. I mean, there, there are a lot of, yeah, I mean, foodborne illness is pretty common. Of, of various sorts like food poisoning and parasites right. and that sort of thing. Those are, those are more common. Um, but like, did you get like, did you have to get like, uh, sh extra shots before yeah, you I had left? to get a typhoid vaccine. Um, the only other re one that they recommended was, I, I, there were a couple of different ones. Malaria is something that you do have to worry about there, but I didn't end up taking the vaccination pills for that. Um, malaria. Yeah. So, there, there are, you know, a few diseases around, but, um, in general, like I got sick more than anybody else I knew in India. Oh, really? Yeah. And I, I mean, I only got, I guess I got like food, sick a few times. food born sick. Not like you didn't get, no, malaria. I got, um, heat sickness actually. Like I got heat stroke once, uh, a couple weeks in, I was playing cricket with my landlord's sons and their friends and stuff. And then I, um, the next day I was. I was pretty pretty darn sick. Um, Speaking of uh, malaria, yeah. back to my friend Miles, who I was telling yeah. you about. Crazy story. So, junior year in college, he goes off to India in, in uh, Papua New Guinea, yeah. and then comes back. And my wife, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, we pick him up, we see him, and then we we back in college. This is our first senior year, and all of a sudden, she was my wife was 
in uh, getting ready to go to a nursing school, and she was in medical, in the medical, in biology, and her family were all doctors and stuff yeah. like that. So Miles was very ill in, in the apartment, and Hillary went in and just took a look at him. She's like, "This isn't. He doesn't have a fever. He got something no. else. He's got." She goes, "She goes. He's got rigors, 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 which right. is like chills, but like vibrating. You're like, you're like." It's more than just Oof. the chills. Like it's like your teeth are chattering out of your head, yeah. and you're just shaking. We draw. We dragged him to the hospital in a, this rural college town. Turns out he had malaria, oh. and they had never seen malaria in in the last time that hospital had a case of malaria was in World War from World War Two. Oh and he had the malaria was so bad they put us into a separate room, and they were going to quarantine us too. And he he was the first person in Knox County to have malaria, and it was scary because it was like if if Hillary hadn't decided because he was like ah it's just the chill it's just the fever I'm pr I'm probably gonna go yeah. away he wouldn't have he wouldn't have made it another twenty four hours oh dang yeah. yeah well good thing so, thank heavens for your, your well wife malaria and I mean malaria I mean <laughs> yeah. no but I mean the thing is is like there is no malaria in the United right. States right not yet anyway so which is Let's like hope it stays that way. Yeah, in like you know, yellow fever or not yellow dengue fever and all yep. this stuff. And like I remember going to uh, when I went to Africa, we had to take a gamulus globin and all this stuff. And you had to you know you had to worry about dengue fever and all this stuff. Yep. And it's just like I'm. I wonder if they're they're the yeah. I guess you're right. The immune system, the immune system in developing countries are are probably far better than. Yeah, us. I think they're they're more primed to deal with deal with the stuff there. Um, so. Yeah. As a you are now, I mean, I still see you and, and a lot of these master bladesmiths. Is, it's almost as especially when I talk to a lot of them, they they know that that getting that designation is like the starting point of the how you want to l keep learning. Like I love, I think the fact that you went, you got your, you got your, you got your MS, and then you went straight to India to learn about uh, all this Kathgari and all yeah. this stuff. You are you are a conduit to generations, and it's this like the con. You know, funny thing is, I was trying to think of words, and I, and I ended up when I was talking to Jason, I was saying, "Hey, you're a conduit to generation." Conduit really means the present. Mm. You know, you're the present. You're the present, and you're kind of taking this information from past generations, and you're going to pass it on. And I know you do a little bit of teaching. Yeah. How do you think that this? Do you think that you're going to continue with Kathgari? Are you going to teach it or? How do you feel like this is going to your experiences will affect how you teach and what you bring to people who are looking at your work? Certainly. I mean, I don't have any immediate plans to teach Kafkari, but I could certainly see that in the future. I need to practice it a lot more myself before I feel like I have a really good handle on it. Um, I also feel like, you know, it's it's part of my responsibility to all the craftsmen that I met to kind of spread awareness of their work and their, um, you know, their their or practice and skills and techniques and, and, you know, kind of to, to be in some ways like an ambassador for them. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of, yeah, in terms of my work going forward, I'm, I'm looking forward to incorporating, incorporating some of these Indian techniques and mixing them with my very American techniques and seeing, seeing what I can make of that. I think, it, I'm at a kind of exciting, I'm at a really exciting place in my career right now where, as you said, I just, you know, won all these awards and then went and go, went and, you know, 
did a whole lot of research in a completely different field that I had not experienced before. And, and now I'm back, I'm getting ready to get back into the shop and, and see what I can do with it. So, um, so do you yeah. take these traditional techniques and you do the tradition or do you do your version of the tradition? I think, I think that there'll probably be a, a combination of both. I want to do some historical replicas, some, some ones that get very close to, to what was made historically. Um, but I also want to say incorporate Kaftagari in, I don't know, chef knives or folding knives or, you know, whatever I happen to be making, um, incorporating some of the, some of the stylistic, you know, design decisions that say they incorporate in just in the, in the piece as a whole. And then also, you know, these sorts of motifs, the, the floral and geometric motifs that you find in, you know, Mughal and Rajput, uh, you know, Indian arms, incorporate those into Just my work. Just out of curiosity, is the kafgari durable? It's like, does it like if you had it on a, as a on a chef knife, would you be worried that it would like flake off? Or you're not worried that it's going to flake off. I mean, over, you know, over decades of use, it will start to wear away. Um, but you know, that's. Yeah, decades. Yeah, decades is not really something that you worry about. I mean, there there are swords yeah. from the you know, 1600s, or I guess yeah, 1700s, like the the 18th century, that are still they ha still have like all their kaftgari on them, and they were worn regularly. And sometimes they were worn regularly, and you can see a pattern of of corrosion where they have been, uh, you know, not a pattern of corrosion, but yeah of erosion pattern of erosion like where where the gold has kind of been rubbed away over over the course of i guess now two three centuries um and so that's that's also kind of a you know a compelling thing to look at the real danger to kaftgari is corrosion you know if if it gets rusty and the rust gets underneath the gold it will pop the gold off and so that's that's an issue you need it does require some care and so in terms of using it on chef knives you know, I'd need to make sure that they're going into the hands of people who know to keep them dry, uh, right. whenever they're not using them. But I think it's a, I oh. think it's a perfectly reasonable thing to put on the hilt, you know, the handle of a chef knife. You, I can just imagine those calls because I get them. I mean, I'm not even making anything that special, mm -hmm. but like, I can just be like, why is it turning color? Yep. I, I can only imagine when you get the Kafgari on and then all of a sudden there's, so there's this part over here that's just kind of weird. What should yeah. I do? I'm like, ah, what are you going to do? Right, right. Well, I mean, as I said, it's also, it's it, it takes a lot of time. Um, you know, this is not like something that, I mean, I guess if you put it in the dishwasher, maybe maybe it'd be an issue. But yeah. if you if you don't. Oh, can you imagine? Uh, can you imagine all the Kafgari is popped, is off in the bottom of the, someone's dishwasher? Well, you know, some plumber would make a whole lot of money off that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. So we'll we'll see about uh, you know how how many chef knives I'm going to put it on. But there are obviously plenty of other applications for it. You could put it on a Bowie knife. You could put it on a dagger. Uh, you know, like a European style dagger. Because um, I I yeah. seem to think right now, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't know if you know or not. But I, Bob Kramer's been doing these amazing knives. He's been putting up for auction. Yeah, and and I. It it feels as I know it's I know he has an engraver who's incredible. I mean, everything that comes out of that shop is just yeah. like top of the line. I wonder if he's using 
Kafgari technique? Uh, I haven't. Or do you know of any other? Do you know of any other American knife makers who are using Kafgari? Not, not currently. No. Uh, there, there are a couple of metal artists who are using uh, Nunume Zogon. I think it's called. It's a, the Japanese version. It's a, like a Japanese overlay. Um, you probably follow Seth Gould and his work. Oh, yeah. Of so he does. Me? I've been trying to get him on this thing for yeah, years. Yeah, he's huge inspiration. Um, he does Nunume Zogon which is like the Japanese version of Kaftgari. It's a it's another overlay technique, um, which apparently he... I mean, he also sometimes does it on copper and that sort of thing. You can do non-ferrous metals with that technique as well. Um, so that's, I, I think, probably the closest to this kind of Kaftgari. There are also a couple of people who are doing uh, like a Viking-type, Viking-style overlay, which is done with a chisel, but it's, again, similar technique. Um, I know that uh, Matt Berry has has played around with that technique a little bit. Uh, he's he's based in Connecticut. You know Matt Berry, um, yeah, Hopkins Forge on Instagram. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He does some really cool bronze casting, but I think he's played around with this technique a little bit. But in general, yeah, it's not a, it's not a te- common technique in in American knife making right now. See, see, here's the thing. Which one thing is I want you to take me back to, you know, if you take me back to when you were testing for Master Bladesmith, but before that, I mean, there's almost like, there's no, I mean, you're going to be the one, the, the ambassador to this technique because there's not going to be any people who are going to be able to understand what right, it is. Right, exactly. And I think there is a lot of interest. I mean, in at least gauging by the interactions with my social media posts, it seems like a lot of people are interested in uh, learning or trying or learning about seems this a, technique it seems attainable it does yeah and i think it really is because it's not doing a lot of you're not doing a lot of in deep engraving because i mean you look at the engraving like yeah uh, evan watson and all these guys who are doing these incredible just scrolls and all these you know traditional things it almost seems inapproachable yeah you know and it seems as though based on how you're explaining it, i'm sure you're simplifying it there seems like there might be this approachable quality to Kafgari that would be applicable to modern day. Work. Yes, I think in terms of the equipment required, it's certainly approachable. I mean, Kafgari is, you know, it requires very little in the in the way of equi- equipment. Really, like five tools, five hand tools, like a sharpening stone and a burnisher and a little pen to push down the wire and a knife to cut the ground. That's about it. Um, and, uh, so, so once you have those tools, which you can make or, or buy, then it's really just a matter of practice and it's a matter of figuring out, okay, what are, what are the designs I want to make and how to, how to get the gold to, to stick in the right way. Um, I can see this being a very interesting addition to the ornamentation of people's work. And their exp- and their and their their expression, you know, the, the the whole idea behind ornamentation now really is, is it's to kind of add to your personal uh, expression. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and and as you as more people adopt this technique and and add surface decoration to their work, um, you know, you, you, that'll be another. Uh, conduit to use your word of personal expression in general. I mean, I think in the American Bladesmith Society, a lot of people 
shy away from surface decoration, partially because they, they require you not to do it in the JS testing. Right. Um, but it's also, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a, you know, figurative designs, floral designs, geometric designs, uh, writing on blades, calligraphy. Those are, those are not something that are as commonly practiced. And, um, and so this is one technique to apply that. Well, that, I mean, Matt Parkinson once again said that if you're going to do some, you know, if you're going to try out some engraving, it better be, or, or whatever these techniques are, better be the best because these, these, the, the, the master bladesmen are not going to take anything other than perfect. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, that is kind of the barrier to entry in some ways. I was reading one engraving book once and the, the author was talking about how, you know, whatever you put, whatever you engrave on a knife or on a gun or whatever you happen to be engraving, um, the user is going to look at that every day for the next two, three, four decades. And so you need to have something that's visually engaging and that will continue to be visually engaging for a long time. Um, so that is, that is kind of a daunting proposition to craft something that, that fits those criteria. Um, but it's also, it's a, I mean, it's an, I'm, I'm, I'm eager for that challenge. Yeah. Last question. Yeah. Not going to be the last question. Not going to be the last question, but think of it as last question. We take me back to when you're being tested for master bladesmith. How nervous were you? I was, I was pretty nervous. I mean, when, when I put my blades down on that room on the, on the table and, and walked out, I, yeah, I was. I was I was really nervous. I mean, hard to quantify exactly, but there's you know, nobody's made a perfect knife and I've never made a perfect knife and there were things wrong with all of those knives that I submitted um that I wish that I had more time or more skills or a different, you know, you know, machinery to fix and that I but but I was pretty confident that I had done the best work that I could in the time that I had. And I was pretty confident that my knives were good. They were, they were good. Uh, so, but yeah, every, every judge is going to be, is going to see something different in every night, in every light, the light, the knives are going to look different. And so, yeah, I was, I was really nervous when those, when I put those knives down, there's no, definitely no given, you know, there's nobody's ever a shoe in for, for the MS stamp. See, what I would be worried about is you're very young. You're not the youngest. Mm -hmm. I think Josh I think Josh Smith is still the youngest to get master. Josh Master's. was the youngest ever. Kyle Royer was the second, I think. I would and what do you know how young what, what was your were you third? I don't know. Um I think I might have been Andrew Mears was also think, pretty young when he got it. So I don't know. I would think that your youth would be not advantageous to you getting. I almost feel as though they shouldn't know who you are because I, I remember talking to Jason on knife talk and he said that he didn't pass someone because for something because he, he knew them and he thought that they could do better. I almost wonder if it should be anonymous. Well, like I feel like, cause I would think that like maybe they, you know, one guy would be like, yeah, you know what? Jordan's only how old are you? Twenty seven. Yeah, 
me at 27 or you, you did it when you were 25. Yeah. Eh, maybe he's a little too young. Maybe he could do a couple more years. And then you automatically give him the old, you know, try again next time. Right. You know, I would think that I would think that your age was not advantageous to you. Yeah, I mean, it didn't it didn't prove to be that way for me. Uh, fortunately, I think. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think if somebody's ready for ready to test for Master Smith, then they should be able to test for Master Smith, and I don't I don't think that age necessarily has to to factor into it. Um, you know, Master just the word Master is kind of a kind of a, a tricky word, maybe an uncomfortable word in some ways for me in, in that it implies a certain finality that I really right. don't perceive in, and I, and I don't want to allow to take hold in my work. You know, I, I don't want, I would never want a title of master to, to be, you know, like a, a statement of, Oh, I've achieved what I need to achieve. And now I can, you know, ride on my own coattails or whatever like that. Um, you know, I think, but yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine how any of these would really be anonymous. I mean, the knife making community is so small that right. I knew personally most of the seven judges who were judging me and right. I followed them on Instagram. They followed me, you know, we like probably a lot of them would be able to identify my work, even if it didn't have my right. name on it um and so yeah i don't know it's hard to it's hard to imagine it being anonymous i think the the best thing that you can do is really <laughs> in some ways to get around those politics of oh he's young he just needs to you know have right. a little more time it's more more to cultivate an image of yourself uh you know in in kind of the the public perspective as being someone who's engaged in the craft and invested in continuing to learn and grow. I would think uh, we were, <clears throat> Jason and I were talking last, last episode. And, and one of the things that we were pointing upon is I feel like the American lexicon has stunted creativity when they use the word masterpiece. When an artist says, this is my masterpiece, or if something's really good, you refer to this as your masterpiece. Mm. I almost feel like that's a stunting word that makes you subconsciously think it ain't going to get much better than this and i always i always wonder when someone has a master bladesmith if they feel this pressure because of the that that designation yeah i mean i oh, there's a certain amount of pressure i mean i i've never used the term masterpiece to refer to my own work um but yeah there is a certain amount of pressure especially when you go for master bladesmith that set of five knives is something that you will be known for that's uh, right. something that you know. Those images of the five knives get pretty well, pretty widespread, and that's what collectors tend to see when they when they look people up. Is they'll look at that Master Smith set. So you know, I, I would encourage you know if somebody's going for Master Smith set. You know, be sure you're ready to make you know a set that you will be known by for a while. Um, but it doesn't it certainly doesn't have to be anything final you can you can change and and grow and learn new things well last question this is the real last yeah. question best meal you had in india Ooh. you could do a top three yeah That's fine. whatever you want well i i, I mentioned to you dalbati right and 
man, anytime I had that in India, it was, it was terrific. <laughs> um, but really, at, you know, at Rahul and Sandeep's house, the Chohan house, uh, the Dalbati there was phenomenal. Will you be making Dalbati? Yes, I actually did once so far. Um, I, I'd like to make it again. I, I could make it a little bit better. I'm still getting the hang of cooking for larger groups of people. Usually when I cooked in India, I was cooking for just myself. And here I need to cook for a lot more a lot more people. So got to get my ratios right. But I'll, I'll be cooking it again for sure. What's next for Jordan Lamote? So right now I'm working on some kind of major shop renovations to get my get my workshop more comfortable uh a healthier work environment uh you know in terms of dust control and just uh you know make it use space more efficiently and then i'll be back making making knives i'm i've got you know a long list of projects that i'd like to tackle including some historical replicas including some i'm gonna get back into the chef knife game make some some fancy mosaic damascus chef knives again and uh and then i'm teaching this year i'm teaching a bunch of different classes uh kind of I'm teaching at new agrarian school in montana i'm teaching at um sandborn mills farm in new hampshire teaching Salem, Salem Artworks in uh, Salem, New York, near to here, teaching at Adirondack Folk School, and uh, I'm teaching at um, uh, Peters Valley. So, oh, there yeah. you go. So, Jordan's lots teaching. Of, lots every, of classes this year. He's a he's a as they say a conduit to generations. <laughs> and very important that teaching the teaching that's part of that whole being part of that, you know, the continuation of education throughout generations is keeping it alive. Yeah, I, I really love fostering other people's, um, it, it, you know, inspiration and enthusiasm about this craft. Jordan Lamote, you said it all. We're glad you're back. Well, glad I'm you're glad back. to be back. And, and what a pleasure it's been to, to chat with you, Jeff. These oh, are always lots are, of listen, fun. I've been trying to get you back ever since that Friday where I needed, I wanted to get you back the following Monday <laughs> from the last one because I needed a round. You have no idea how many people called me up. They're like, what happened? What oh. happened? Well, Jordan Lamote, ladies and gentlemen, go follow him on Instagram. Go see what he's doing. Check out all those great pictures from, from where, from his trip to India. It was awesome to follow. I, you know, when you told me about it originally, it sounded like you had all I had it all squared away. It sounded like it, it exceeded your expectations, and I'm very happy for you. It certainly did. Thank you, Jeff. Guys, go follow Jordan. You know how you know what to do, and uh, we'll see you next week with the with the continuation, the continuation of the conduit to generations all right all right guys we'll see you next week jordan thanks again my pleasure jeff this show is brought to you by the makery the podcast network for makers <laughs> <laughs>